0: All righty, it's about time to go, so if you'd open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2 tonight, we'll look at the final verses. And they are most interesting verses. Starting at verse 20 of Haggai chapter 2, here's what we read. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Haggai, and it certainly has a conclusion to it like no other that we know of, so we thank you for that. We pray that as we analyze this text tonight, that your spirit would work in our minds and hearts, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. In multiple passages of scripture, God makes it very clear, I intend to wipe out and destroy all political powers, and I'm going to set up my kingdom. That's not just found in one passage, it's found in many, many passages of the word of God. There's a glorious kingdom coming, there's going to be a glorious king reign, and before he does that, he's going to overthrow and demolish kingdoms. He wants his people to understand that point, point. Because we are not living in a millennial world of millennial bliss. He wants us to understand that God is one day going to take charge of this world. Now, Haggai is a book that's part of the minor prophets, which means Haggai is a prophet. And a prophet primarily had two main responsibilities. First of all, he had to foretell the truth of God's word. And then he had to foretell the truth of God's future. That was the job of a prophet. You had to go to people, tell the people what the Word of God said, what the Word of God was, and then you also were used to predict the future. Now, Haggai's message to this point has been aimed primarily at three different targets. It's been aimed at Zerubbabel the governor, it's been aimed at Joshua the priest, and it was aimed at Israel, the remnant of the people. God had used Haggai to tell the people they needed to make a decision to get their focus back on the Lord. They needed to focus on the Word of God and the right relationship with the Lord. They needed to be clean and pure. They needed to be clean people as they went to worship, and they needed to rebuild the temple. The relationship was more than just one of doing religious works. As we saw last time, God wanted those people clean. And if they would purpose to be clean, God would shower them with his blessings. That's the point we saw last time we were together. Now, we come to verse 20 tonight, and it opens with a statement that God's word came to Haggai a second time on the same day. On the 24th day of the ninth month, God's word came again to Haggai. You'll notice that there are two proper nouns that are used for God, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, capitals, which is the covenant sovereign God of Israel. And then you have, of course, the Lord of hosts that's repeated twice in verse 23. God is the one who's in charge of the armies in the heavens and on the earth. He's overruling everything. But this time, as we come to this final message in the book of Haggai, there are two differences. Number one, his final message was specifically given to Zerubbabel. And as we'll see, by virtue of that fact, this has definite royal prophetic implications. And secondly, Haggai's final message was futuristically given concerning prophecy. So those are two differences in the book of Haggai at this point. Now, to this point, the message of Haggai has been designed to motivate people in the present, but this final message to Zerubbabel is about the future. The final message of the book is not Haggai foretelling the word of God; it's Haggai foretelling the future. Now, so far in this book of Haggai, we've had four different dates. You have the first one given on the first day of the sixth month. You have the second date, the 24th day of the sixth month, which was 23 days after the first message. Then you have God's word given on the 21st day of the seventh month, which is 50 days after the first message. And then we had... The fourth date, God's word given on the 24th day of the ninth month, some 113 days after the first message, and the final messages, 4, 5, and 6, are given on that 24th day of the ninth month. They all are given on that day. Now we may notice from verse 20 that the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day, so this is the second time on the same day that God has actually come and given a message to Haggai. And again, to point out the preposition to, it emphasizes actually God is speaking directly to Haggai. That's important because what Haggai is going to reveal here is very significant. Now, this specific final message is given to Zerubbabel, and it's this. Haggai's final message to Zerubbabel is that God is going to pour out his wrath in the future But he's going to establish a glorious Davidic kingdom for Israel on earth that will honor Zerubbabel. That you'll see tonight. Now, in verse 21, we read, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So this is a specific message to him. It's a wonderful message to him. It's more wonderful than most would understand. In fact, I'm sure at this point it was more wonderful than he even understood. This is not addressed to the priests and it's not addressed to the people. It's specifically addressed to the governor. Now, Zechariah and Haggai are two prophets that are functioning at about the same time. And Joshua, the priest, does not get a specific message from God in the book of Haggai. He does get one from God in the book of Zechariah. So just flip over a page or two to your right in your Bible, and I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 3, And I want to point out something here that I think is significant to this context. In Zechariah chapter 3, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. That's the same priest that we've seen in the book of Haggai. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Satan, indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand... Plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. Now here's Joshua's message that he gets. The angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now I'm going to read a little bit between the lines on that challenge that he gives to Joshua because it's different than the one he gives to Zerubbabel. The challenge to Joshua seems to imply or infer that God was holding him pretty high accountable for the fact that he was a priest and he was not monitoring what was going on in that temple area because he challenges him in verse 7 of Zechariah chapter 3, if you will walk in my ways, which he probably viewed Joshua as being critical to the letdown that occurred in that temple. I mean, the temple hadn't been rebuilt. Joshua was the priest. He should have been the guy on the front lines of doing that. So it seems to me what God is doing with Joshua and the message he gives to him is he's telling him, now look, if you get your act together and if you start functioning in the way you're supposed to function and you perform my service and you do what you're supposed to do, then I'm going to grant you free access and you'll govern in my house. You'll be able to have charge of my courts. But that is a conditional thing that he says to Joshua. As you'll see, this is not conditional when it comes to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel, on the other hand, he was the governor of Judah, and he was in the Davidic line. He was a grandson of Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin went by two different names, Coniah and Jeconiah. Those are two names for Jehoiachin. He was the king of Judah when the Babylonians had captured Jerusalem. He only reigned three months as king. He was an evil king, and God said, I'm sending Nebuchadnezzar to just take him out of office and remove him. So he sent Nebuchadnezzar in there, being an evil and corrupt politician, and God put an end to him, and he said, basically, I've seen enough of him. Now, Jehoiachin was so evil that God made a specific declaration about him through the prophet Jeremiah about 70 to 100 years before the book of Haggai. And we need to understand this prediction because it's found in Jeremiah 22, 24 to 30. And I do want you to just go over there, if you would, please, to Jeremiah, just back left in your Bible a few pages, to Jeremiah 22. And I want to show you the prediction that God makes concerning Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. In Jeremiah chapter 22, I want to begin reading at verse 24, which says, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, that's our Jehoiachin, Koniah or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man Kaniah a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now, in that passage, Jeremiah says God is so fed up with this guy that no one from his family line is going to be permitted to sit on the Davidic throne. No one from his family line is going to be able to wear that signet ring. No descendant of Jehoiachin will be permitted to be on David's throne because he was such a loser in the sight of God. Now, we turn the clock ahead from 630 B.C. from the time of Jeremiah to 520 B.C. in the time of Haggai. And Haggai gives a specific message from God to Zerubbabel, and the message is he's going to make you a key political leader on that day. So the logical question is, how is that possible when he comes through that family line? How would that be possible? How would it be possible to sit on a throne, Jeremiah said, upon which no one from that family can sit? Well, the answer lies, as we will see, in the reality that one would come through the Davidic line who would be a person who would bypass the sinful lineage. In other words, a non-sinful person would have to come through the Davidic line in order to make it possible for that Davidic throne to have a person on it that actually came through this lineage of Jehoiachin, and eschatologically, the only person who can make that happen is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who makes it possible for the kingly line of David to be preserved, so what ends up on the throne is a righteous king. Jesus Christ is the one who makes it possible for not only Zerubbabel to be there, but every other person who is in the Davidic family. See, Jesus Christ was the legal son of, not the natural son, but he was the legal son of Joseph, who, according to Matthew and Luke, was a physical descendant of Solomon and Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. The real father, of course, of Jesus Christ was God. And that makes it possible for someone from the Davidic family line to sit on that throne. And God will literally honor Zerubbabel And that's what he promises to do here, and we'll see that in just a few minutes. He literally will promise to honor Zerubbabel. What makes that possible is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came through that line, and yet he did not allow himself to be touched or was not allowed to be touched by any of that physical sin seed. He came as the virgin-born son of God, which puts this in the line and gives the capability for the Davidic reign of a Davidic king that comes through that family line. You see, God has made a covenant with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. God has made a covenant with David. It's called the Davidic covenant. God has made a futuristic new covenant that will fulfill everything that's made in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. And in those covenants, God has legally guaranteed that Israel will have a land and will be a great nation esteemed by all nations of the world, and she'll be a kingdom that will be ruled by the royal family of David. And the new covenant confirms that there will come a time when God is going to fulfill every one of those promises that he made to this nation. Now as Haggai brings this book to an end, he's delving into that prophetic truth. And there are three prophetic points that God makes clearly connected to futuristic time. Point number one, God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. That's what he says in verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I've cited for you some passages out of Hebrews. I'll point them out in just a moment. In Zerubbabel's lifetime, that never happened when Zerubbabel was here. In fact, it still hasn't happened. This language of shaking the heavens and the earth has to do with a futuristic divine judgment. And we certainly are seeing that that literally is going to happen in the tribulation. It'll happen at the end of the tribulation, and it happens throughout the tribulation when God is shaking the heavens and the earth. So this language is very futuristic. Now there are some who have said this is a prediction of the upcoming invasions of Greece or Rome where he's going to shake up things around the land of Palestine, but that cannot be true because of what the writer of Hebrews says. If you drop down to verse 26, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews twelve twenty-six, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he's promising, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. He's referring right here to this moment when God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. This expression, verse 27, yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, God shook Mount Sinai when he gave the law to Israel. God shook the earth the moment Jesus Christ died. But Haggai says there is a moment coming when God is going to shake the heavens and the earth one more time. And the writer of Hebrews says, it is going to be a moment that is yet to occur in the future. It will be a moment just before he establishes a kingdom. And we know that the shaking of the earth and the heavens is a key part of judgment in the great tribulation, which leads to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Haggai is predicting here is God is going to shake the world and the heavens before he establishes an unshakable kingdom. That's the principle that he's developing here. And Haggai is predicting that this is going to happen. That's what the writer of Hebrews is basically saying. He's going to shake the world before that happens. And let me point out just one, if I may, New Testament reference to this very event. If you'd go over to Matthew 24 for just a moment in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24. And let me just point out one text of scripture for you. And you'll notice in verse 29, when the actual moment occurs here in Matthew 24, 29, Jesus uh, alludes to this. He says in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the great tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So what we would learn from this is this is a clear prophetic prediction that Haggai is making that has to do with the moment that God is going to take over the world, when Jesus Christ is coming back to take over the world. And he's basically predicting that is going to happen. He's telling Zerubbabel that is going to happen. Now the second prophetic point is God is going to overthrow and destroy all world powers. That's what he says in verse 22. In verse 22, he says, I will, this is God's message that he was to tell Zerubbabel, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down every one by the sword of another. We have mentioned multiple times that the political powers of the world that are ruling the world, they have no interest for the most part in accurately understanding the scriptures over the constituency of which they rule. A party may be more or less involved in this, but I don't believe there's a political power in existence that actually is really concerned about what says the word of God on the matter. I don't believe that. I believe that most political powers actually believe, most parties, that they can somehow bring peace to the land and prosperity to the land through them without God. God's word says that isn't going to happen. And I also know from the scriptures that these political parties are not just going to wonderfully, graciously turn their power over to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to take it by force. He uses language here that would indicate that's exactly what he's going to do. In fact, when he uses that word overthrow, it's the same word that is used in Genesis concerning when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's the same Hebrew word. So what basically Haggai is saying is God, at one point in time, is going to, in the future, actually take over the world. But in order to take over the world, he's going to have to overthrow and destroy all the world powers. And there are four amazing predictions that are made there in verse 22. And first of all, God says, I'm going to destroy and overthrow thrones. That's interesting. By the way, I do want to point this out because we pointed it out Sunday night in the Greek text, it's interesting that the actual Hebrew noun thrones here, kaset, is singular, not plural. And I think it could be a reference to the satanic power that's dominating the world right now. I mean, this world's under the prince and power of darkness, the ruler of the air. I mean, that's what Paul teaches us. So this world of ours is not being dominated by godly things. And so God is going to have to overthrow the throne to set up a kingdom. Secondly, he said, I'm going to overthrow kingdoms. I'm going to overthrow all political kingdoms, those God-mocking, Bible-hating fools who've been making mockery of me and my word, and mockery of Israel, and mockery of everything decent. I'm going to overthrow them. Then he says, I will destroy and overthrow the power of the kingdoms. Now that's a Daniel prediction. I want to just write down in your notes, Daniel 2.44, I'll just read the verse for you tonight. Daniel 2.44 next to that one, because here's what Daniel predicts. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. God basically says, I'm going to destroy and overthrow all the powers of the earth. I'm going to take over. And then finally, I'll destroy all the military powers as well. I don't care what the military is. I don't care what they are, what they have as weapons. It isn't going to stop God from taking over the world. So God, as he's wrapping his message up to rubbable Wants him to know, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He wants him to know, I'm going to overthrow and destroy all world powers. You've lived through a nightmare here and what you've seen Nebuchadnezzar do. You can know this. There'll come a day when I'll take that completely out. But then he says, I'm going to elevate you. God is going to elevate Zerubbabel at that time. Now he makes a statement in verse 23 that's just amazing. On that day, now that's a futuristic day, the day when he's shaking the heavens and the earth, the day when he's overthrowing all powers of the world. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. When God overthrows world powers and establishes his kingdom on this earth. And I'm going to take this literally. There are some commentators that don't see this literal. They see this as a metaphorical picture talking about Jesus Christ. I don't see it that way. I think this is a direct promise he's making to Zerubbabel. I'm just going to leave it set there. It's a direct promise that he makes to Zerubbabel. Because in eternity, God says, I'm going to raise you up and I'm going to honor you. I think the resurrection where that will happen is the one referred to by Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. It's been a while since we went through the book of Daniel, but that's the resurrection where Daniel's people are raised up. They're raised up to inherit this kingdom, and it is an on-that-day prophecy, so we know that it hasn't happened yet. It's clearly futuristic. Now, that news that Haggai is giving Zerubbabel, that God intends to do this with him, would be amazing news for him to learn. Because what he would conclude from this is not only will I be alive, back living when this prophetically happens, but me and my family will be elevated by God because God has just chosen to do this. In other words, God is going to overthrow the Jehoiachin curse. I mean, he must have rolled through his mind the prophecy of Jeremiah that said nobody is going to sit on the throne that comes through that line. And then he's thinking, man, he's telling me that we're going to be, we're going to be raised up in this kingdom and we're going to be honored in this kingdom when God takes over the world, when he stamps out those thrones. Now, Zerubbabel quite an interesting political leader in the Davidic line. He led the project to get the temple rebuilt as a political leader. He would not let their enemies do anything connected to it either which makes him just an incredible leader. And once Haggai and Zechariah had told them to get rebuilding, he immediately obeyed. And what Haggai does here is he says, I want you to understand this. When that kingdom is established, not only will you be there, but you'll have a key position in that kingdom. In fact, he says, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. Now, a signet ring... We learn from the book of Esther when Ahasuerus gave Mordecai his signet ring, it was a sign of of kingly authority, kingly royalty. I mean, he literally could sign a document. In fact, that is the context in the book of Esther. He could literally sign a document, take that signet ring and impress upon it the signet ring, and that carried the full weight of royalty of King Ahasuerus, Xerxes by his Greek name, and he was given full authority as Mordecai to have that ring. So when he says to Zerubbabel, you're going to be this signet ring, he would have said, man, what he's basically telling me is when this kingdom is established, I'm going to actually be in some kingly capacity. I'm going to be in some high rank position where I'm viewed in an elevated way. God said, I've declared this. That's what he says at the end of verse 23. This is what I've declared. This is what I'm going to do, Zerubbabel. This is what I'm going to do for you. God says, this is what I've promised to do. Now, I think every political leader in the world would do well to consider this passage. Because God is going to hold political leaders highly accountable for the way they govern their people and the way they pointed them. And I, frankly, haven't seen too many that point people into the concept of let's reverence God and let's reverence the word. There haven't been too many that have said, let's get involved in reverent worship. Not too many at all. But wise is the leader who promotes the importance of reverencing God and his word. There will be a day of accountability that political leaders are going to face. And Zerubbabel came from a family lineage of quite honestly, one of the worst political leaders in history. And yet, what we see with him is he feared the Lord, and he feared the word of God, and even when he felt nobody even from our family is going to be sitting on that throne, here comes the grace of God and said, I've made an elective choice, the Zerubbabel, and I'm going to take you from your position, and I'm going to put you into a high-ranking position when the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Now there are some people that take a text like this and then a text like is in Ezekiel. Back up to Ezekiel 34 for just a minute. I want to kind of go back there to Ezekiel 34. Because this is basically dealing with the same time frame of when Jesus Christ establishes the kingdom. In Ezekiel 34 and verse 23... Here's what we read. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, there are some people that read that text and they read the one in Haggai, and they say, well, this is just a reference to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning, and so David is just a type of the Lord, and Zerubbabel is just another type of the Lord. I don't view it that way at all. The language, as far as I can determine, literally says, when Jesus Christ God is here reigning in person— David is going to hold a very high reigning position and Zerubbabel is also going to hold a high ranking position. Why? Because of the election of God. God says, that's what I've chosen to do. He's going to raise up those great heroes from the faith and he's going to basically put them into office. What a kingdom we'll have then. That kingdom will be ruling the world. You'll have Jesus Christ himself headquartered in Jerusalem himself as the God-man, and then you'll have a guy like David and Zerubbabel, and by God's grace, we'll have the privilege of seeing them. I fully expect we'll see Zerubbabel in Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus Christ reigning. He'll be a very high-ranked person who holds a high-ranked position. I want to leave us with some parting thoughts from this book of Haggai. I'm going to give you five. I've written four in your notes. You can write in another one if you want. In life, We need to always keep God and worshiping God at the highest priority. Don't ever forget that. Don't let anything or anyone take priority over God and worshiping the Lord. You keep God at the highest level of your life. That's where these people got in trouble. They got thinking about their own lives and their own families, and they got thinking about their own houses, and they lost sight of worshiping God. And down the drain they went. Secondly, never forget that God is sovereign. He's the Lord of hosts. He rules over the armies in heaven. He rules over the armies on earth. He's in sovereign control. He can do whatever he wants to do. Thirdly, even when worshiping God and working for God, make sure we stay focused on being clean. Even when we're going through motions of worship and church, we need to do introspective work to make certain we're clean. God's taking note of that. Fourthly, in eternity, God will honor individuals who did reverence him in his word. That becomes clear from both the Old and the New Testament, that God does honor those who honor him. And finally, God does have a glorious future for Israel, and he has a glorious future for us. That clearly is how Haggai ended this book. I want to thank you for going through it, taking the time to go through it, and thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.